What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This week, some of the stories we are looking at include Elon Musk, Bitcoins and U-turns, benchmarking with Walmart's global ABC policy, how do you close the moral hazard gap, the role of boards in cybersecurity oversight, are you ready for the EU whistleblower directive? Are companies serious about diversity and inclusion? What are a CCO's most important resource? What happens when whistleblowers joust over an award? Do you have a mindset of respect? And how does ESG serve investors? Podcast highlights, events, books, and more, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. And once again, from an undisclosed location, Mr. Monitor himself uh, in character today for this week in FCPA week ending uh, May 14, 2021, episode 252, the Musk and Bitcoin edition. As Bitcoin goes on a wild ride this week with its new or former, I'm not quite sure, buddy, Elon Musk, and Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, podcasting from an undisclosed location. We take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye in the Musk and Bitcoin edition. Jay, what say you from your undisclosed location? I say, let's hear about the Bitcoin. Bring it on. So um, it's been a wild week for Bitcoin, and it really started last week on Saturday on Saturday Night Live, and I, I wish we could play the clip, but uh, we don't have that technical capabilities. But Elon Musk was the uh, special guest host, and he did a um, a couple of other skits, one of which he was a expert on the weekend news explaining Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And in the middle of, or at the end of his explanation of what Do- Bitcoin was, he talked about Dogecoin and, and described it as, quote, a hustle, end quote, Dogecoin immediately tanked one-third of its value. It's a cryptocurrency similar to Bitcoin. And the trading was so intense on Monday that um, our good friends over at uh, GameStop had to, uh, excuse me, at uh, Robinhood, the trading platform, had to suspend trading. Um, Matt Kelly uh, took a look at this in uh, before SNL uh, in Radical Compliance. Matt and I talked about Musk's performance, uh, although that was mainly me, uh, Matt was much more cerebral, in this week's Compliance into the Weeds, <clears throat> Andrew Ross Sorkin, in the always great daily New York Times deal book, talked about the latest development, which was the stunner of the week, given everything that had gone on. And we should probably give a little background because um, Musk and Tesla <clears throat> had invested heavily in 
in Bitcoin, and it had uh, really saved the companies in terms of its Q1 earnings report, um, making uh, billions uh, from the investment. And specifically for Dogecoin, uh, Musk had tweeted out that he was going to take Dogecoin to the moon uh, with the SpaceX rocket. So it was doing quite well uh, up until the Saturday Night Live appearance. Well, then on Wednesday of this week, Musk announced that uh, Tesla, even though a heavy investor in Bitcoin, would no longer be accepting Bitcoin for payment. <clears throat> and he claimed it was because of the high environmental cost for not only mining the minerals that create Bitcoin, but the power gen- generation needs for uh, computers that um, run blockchain, which Bitcoin is recorded on. Uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin raised several different uh, potential reasons in his piece, and uh, it is, uh, I'm not sure it rise, raises to troubling Jay, but it's certainly odd that someone who has been as public as Elon Musk about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and Dogecoin uh, would suddenly switch gears, or as uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin said, do a U-turn. Uh, I'm t- talking from an older tradition and say he would he did a full bat turn on uh, Bitcoin, so or cryptocurrency. So lots to uh, we can't unpack it because it's still unpacking itself in uh, the blogosphere and social media, but we will probably have to see how this plays out. We've linked to all of those into the show notes. Anything kind of from from your perspective where, I mean, you I won't say where you live because, of course, it's an undisclosed location, but it may be in an area that is uh, uh, used to seeing Mr. Musk uh, make various pronouncements. Um, it's it's not surprising, and I think he uh, was able to struggle his way through the skits. It's uh, okay. I think uh, SNL's first host who was somewhere on the Asperger's uh, spectrum. So uh, I thought it made for very interesting uh, viewing, but uh, I cannot comment on Dogecoin or any of those things. Uh, Mrs. Rosen does not uh, condone investments in such vehicles. Didn't you go to that vocational school and have an MBA in, uh, you know, vocational finance or something that uh, we've not previously disclosed that you can maybe make a comment on? Nope, nope. I'm going to um, talk about the I'm first so of two <laughs> stories from the FCPA blog. Uh, first up, Harry Casson, uh, benchmarking alert. Here's Walmart's full global anti-corruption policy. In June 2019, Walmart paid the Department of Justice and the Securities Exchange Commission $282 million to settle allegations that it violated the FCPA by paying an intermediary in Brazil for help obtaining construction permits and having weak anti-corruption internal controls in Brazil, China, India, and Mexico. So how does the three-page anti-corruption policy compare? First off, it's global. To effectively implement this policy, Walmart shall maintain an effective risk-based global anti-corruption program designed to prevent, detect, and remediate bribery and record-keeping violations. As part of the program, Walmart shall adopt operating procedures specifically targeted to corruption risks that exist for all of its operations worldwide. Number two, it's helpful to report anonymously. All reports to the ethics and compliance are treated as confidentially as possible. It helps with follow-up if you identify yourself, but if you're not comfortable identifying yourself, 
You can make an anonymous report to the ethics outline to the extent allowed by law. Number three, no mention of facilitating payments. The policy prohibits corrupt payments in all circumstances, whether in dealings with government officials or individuals in the private sector. Every company that the FCPA blog has benchmarked so far has explicitly mentioned facilitating payments. Those companies include Apple, Novartis, Microsoft, Volkswagen, and Airbus. But in contrast, Senor Musk's company, Tesla, might approve of some facilitating payments. Number four, don't fake it. Knowingly reporting false information is contrary to our values and will be subject to disciplinary action. Also, anyone who reports a suspected violation may be subject to disciplinary action to the extent that he or she violates any Walmart policy. And lastly, there are incentives. Appropriate incentives and punishments for associates, executives, and third parties for adherence to or violations of, respectively, the relevant policy and related procedures. In the show notes, we have a link to the full three-page anti-corruption policy that's on the FCPA blog. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have an article from our good friend Jeff Kaplan, uh, this time posted in also in the FCPA blog. And Jeff talks about uh, the moral hazard gap and why white-collar enforcement is really about closing the moral hazard gap. The moral hazard gap does not really have anything to do with morality. It is more um, what happens when... Uh, you can do something, but perhaps you shouldn't do it. And this is um, uh, the the best example uh, Jeff pulls is uh, from the prior financial crisis of 2008, where in one email, uh, our SEC reported one email uh, between two, two traders said, quote, let's hope we're all wealthy and retired by the time this house of cards falls. So that's the moral hazard gap when you can do something, but you really shouldn't do it. Uh, Another term for it is the behavioral economics phenomenon of victim distance. The more distance we are from possible victims of our actions, the less weight we are likely to give their interests. So uh, this is something that Jeff says you should tackle directly in your compliance program through both incentives and discipline. And a strong and consistent disciplinary program is critical uh, in addressing moral hazards. Uh, he believes the DOJ puts a great deal of stress in this and that uh, it's something that if you think about uh, bribery and corruption in this way, it really helps lead you to some potential solutions. So uh, check it out. Always great stuff uh, from Jeff Kaplan. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Tom. Next up, uh, we're checking in with the NYU Corruption and Enforcement blog got a gaggle of four attorneys from Walkden Liptel, John Savaris, Sarah Eady, Sebastian Niles, and Gian Salone Favors, and they're taking a look at cybersecurity oversight and defense, a board and management imperative. This past weekend's criminal ransomware attacks drove the shutdown of one of America's largest pipelines as a precautionary means of containing the impact of the breach, highlighting the vulnerability of the nation's energy infrastructure. Recent and ongoing cyber incidents, among others, reinforce the imperative that companies diligently consider cybersecurity risks, mitigate vulnerabilities, engage in active defense, and plan for robust and rapid incident response, including from ransomware and other extortion-based attacks. 
Boards of directors and management teams should, as a general matter, have the following in mind when it comes to cyber risk. Oversight mechanism. Boards should carefully consider with management the avenues through which they monitor cyber risk. The appointment of directors with experience in technology should be evaluated alongside board tutorials and ongoing director education on these matters. Review of policies, procedures, and resources. In carrying out their oversight function, directors should ensure that the company has written policies and procedures in place governing each of the elements outlined in the National Institute of Standard Technology NIST cybersecurity framework. Third, verification of risk identification and assessment. Companies should work to ensure that directors have an understanding of all mission-critical systems that the company uses and the data it collects, as well as risks the company faces by virtue of how its technology and stores and collects data. Oversight of protection, detection, and mitigation plans. Directors should be briefed on management's plan for implementing appropriate protections against cyber intrusions and related risks, including programmatic efforts to detect and mitigate vulnerabilities and enable business continuity. Knowledgeable employees from the internal audit function should usually be involved as well. Oversight of response strategy and disclosure protocols. Directors should receive briefings from time to time on the procedures put in place by management to facilitate a swift, robust, and effective response to a breach or other cybersecurity incident. The board should also expect to be appropriately briefed on the board's response, rather on the company's response to the material cybersecurity incidents and related impacts and whether management recommends material changes to the response plans. And finally, what Tom always loves, document, 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 documentation of board-level oversight. Finally, the board and committee oversight activities, including the aftermath of material cyber incidents that cause significant harm or disruption, should be appropriately documented in the minutes. Adhering to these principles will not eliminate cybersecurity risks. They will also not reduce the continuing need for coordinated federal, state, and local enforcement and policy resources on these issues. Rather, these concepts offer a solid foundation for an effective board-level oversight posture with respect to the growing scale of cybersecurity risks. Back to you, Tom. So for those uh, not in our studio audience, uh, you're missing a great show at the Undisclosed Location where Jay's recording, and I'll only relate that there may be other numerous actors involved uh, in this show. Nevertheless, um, since this is audio only, you're really not getting the full flavor. Uh, But we'll move on to our next story, which uh, comes to us from Neil Hodge writing in Compliance Week about the new EU whistleblower directive. And it's uh, really interesting, Jay, because the directive goes into effect December 17th, but really a lot of things are up in the air. First, unlike EU regulations, which must be transposed into national law as written, the directives are open to different national interpretations. Second, in many countries in the EU, whistleblowing does not even exist in their language. So this could really uh, lead for wildly differing levels of implementation and enforcement. And finally, the directive doesn't even define whistleblowing. So a lot uh, in here, and what uh, Neil tries to emphasize is that uh, through his interviews with uh, people quoted in the piece, there could be a wide variety of 
not only national directives or rather national interpretations of the directive, but the same could be true uh, for um, uh, interpretations and enforcement. So it really could be uh, much like the 50 laboratories that the United States consists of, of 50 states, there's 27 EU members, so they could be um, um, wildly differing. So we really need some guidance that companies need guidance uh, because what may be even a national law in one country may not be the interpretation of another country. Jay, we have to stop right now because we have breaking news. And this is specifically for Greg Greenberg, if you're listening. Uh, Liverpool defeated Man U 4-2 today. So big, big win. You will never uh, uh, walk alone. Uh, Jay, what's up for you? Uh, Next up, we've got something from Corporate Compliance Insights. And this comes to us from Henry Kronk. Companies say they're serious about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but if so, why are this year's 10Ks so short on detail? Though companies say diversity, equity, and inclusion are top concerns, few included the DEI data as part of human capital disclosures on their latest form 10Ks. Public companies already collect and separately report DEI data to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, but the SEC in November applied its principles-based approach to new reporting requirements for human capital disclosures. Quote, the SEC left it really open-ended, said Intelligize Senior Director of Customer Experience and Knowledge, Rob Peters. Intelligize analyzed human capital disclosures on 427 10Ks from the S&P 500. We saw that particularly with early disclosures, those right after the regulation went into effect, Peters continued. He said, I think some of the later disclosures tend to be more descriptive, but still lacked EEOC data. How companies describe their workforces in human capital. Public companies report the details of their workforce in a number of ways, both voluntary and mandated. Many use their websites or annual reports to discuss these issues, and private sector companies with 100 employees or more must also report details of their workforce to the EEOC via form EEO-1, but EEO-1 filings are not public. Many companies say improving DEI is a top priority, but on audited documents, they tend to be silent. One recent survey identified DEI as the single most important issue for boards. Deloitte's latest Board Practices Quarterly report found DEI beat out recovering from COVID-19 as the most top-of-mind issue. Background, the SEC signals a mountain of human capital disclosure updates and delivers a mohill. When in the summer of 2019, the SEC announced it was contemplating amendments to human capital disclosure requirements, the news was met with enthusiasm by by labor advocates. But in the end, the commission's changes were minimal. While it did update 101C, the update did not define human capital and barely change existing rules. Filing practices will likely evolve over time. Experts recommend companies own up or risk getting left behind. Peters encourages companies even to look beyond DEI and SEC guidance to subjects like employee comp and benefits. It's one area where shareholders probably can come to a better understanding of a company, he said. I think it's more tangible that some like something like stock performance. 
everyone is always looking to competitors as to what they're disclosing to make sure they're not missing anything. They are used by other companies either as a guidepost or warning sign if they were perceived to go in the wrong direction. But for the time being, widely remains for companies when it comes to human capital disclosures. Back to you, Tom. Uh, I think a little little bit different approach because I use an article that we're talking about. It's really a jumping off point because I thought it was so important, a concept. And the article is by uh, Steve uh, Chapman in Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog, where he asks, who is uh, the most important resource for your innovation? And although you did take a short detour as an award-winning screenwriter and a proud SAG card-carrying member, um, most of your career has been in uh, business development, or at least since I've known you. And you would probably agree that your customers can really help you innovate, whether that's in a new product, a new service, a combination of both, or even just delivery of your products in in a better, more efficient manner. Uh, I don't think that's a big surprise. Uh, But what I want to use this article, though, is to emphasize that this is even more applicable to a chief compliance officer, because who are the customers of a chief compliance officer? The employees of a company. And if you can involve your employees, i.e. your customers, in the process, particularly the innovation process, I think it can help make your compliance program much more robust. I've written about this quite a bit. And so uh, I thought this was a great article. Steve's article is excellent, but I thought it was also a great article to get compliance officers thinking about how can I um, engage my own employees. The best example I can point you to is that of Lewis Sapperman, who was then um, CCO at Dun & Bradstreet, now at uh, Panasonic Avionics of North America. Uh, But when he was at D&B, they did... um, essentially uh, tweet-ups, although they were called chatter jams, uh, an internal Twitter function behind their firewall, where they would talk to their employees. And uh, the uh, new code of conduct they implemented in the middle of an FCPA investigation, the employees uh, voted to name it, do the right thing. And so that became a hashtag within the chitter chatter chitter chatter community at DNB, and more importantly, that was the name of the code of conduct. So something that small can actually reap huge benefits. So engage your customers is just a great business development concept, but let's put it over into the compliance realm where your customers are your employees. So uh, I thought that was a great message, and I hope that uh, CCO types will take that to heart. So next up, we check in for a second time in this podcast with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly and his Radical Compliance blog. And Matt asks, what happens when whistleblowers joust over an award? Here's something you don't see every day. Two recipients of a whistleblower award from the SEC fighting over how to split the $22 million between them. The SEC announced the award last week, and as usual, we know little about the case itself. Apparently, the misconduct happened at a financial firm, which at some point agreed to a cease and desist order. A whistleblower award of $22 million also implies that the firm paid a fine somewhere between $73 million to $220 million. More intriguing was the drama around the two whistleblowers sharing the $22 million. 
Claimant one received 18 million because that person submitted his tip to the SEC first and provided extensive assistance that helped the SEC enforcement attorneys devise their investigation plan. Claimant two received a paltry $4 million because he or she, we don't know, arrived with his tip several years later, but claimant two was still, quote, a valuable firsthand witness who provided documents and other evidence that helped SEC lawyers seal the case. What's interesting is that these two tipsters knew each other. Each one argued that he or she, not the other, provided the real goods and should receive more of the award. Let's look at claimant one. Claimant one made persistent efforts to remedy the issues while suffering hardships. Hmm, that makes claimant one sound suspiciously like a compliance officer or an internal auditor. We can't be sure of that. Typically, when an SEC tipster is a compliance or audit executive, the fact is disclosed in the settlement order, and no such fact was disclosed here. Regardless, claimant one sounds like a gatekeeper of some time. Meanwhile, claimant two was somebody who had directly witnessed misconduct and provided documents and other testimony. Also telling at some point, claimant two passed information along about the misconduct to claimant one, apparently by email. The SEC order also identifies claimant two as a percipient witness and a recent insider. So it seems that claimant two was an operating unit employee who communicated misconduct. Claimant one tried to raise alarms and resolve the misconduct, suffered retaliation for doing so, and then took his concerns directly to the SEC, which also sounds suspiciously like an ordeal that a compliance officer would endure. Here we enter disputes over the money. The SEC staff proposed a split of $18 million and $4 million. In per-agency policy, each whistleblower had a chance to respond. Claimant one promptly said he or she should receive maximum potential payout of 30% of the settlement and that claimant two should get zilch. Why? Because claimant one told the SEC his rival claimant two hadn't provided the SEC with any new and original information and that should leave claimant two ineligible. On the other side, claimant two, two told the SEC that he should receive a larger share of the $22 million because he provided lots of information real technical term to claimant one, and that claimant one turned around and gave the information to the SEC. Claimant two also said he had provided a tip directly to the SEC before claimant one. Here's how the SEC chose to resolve the issue. In the SEC's analysis, claimant one deserved more money because he worked with the agency for years and provided extensive practical assistance. Plus, there's that line in the award order that just sounds so compliance-ish, quote, Claimant one made persistent efforts to remedy issues while suffering hardships, unquote. Claimant two, in contrast, did provide critical information, but only at a much later point in time. And the SEC couldn't confirm claimant two's contention that he was the original source of claimant one's information in the first place. The bottom line, claimant one tried to do the right thing inside the company and worked for years with the SEC to get the misconduct resolved. So he or she took home 81% of $22 million. Sometimes persistence and ethical conduct does pay off. Tom, back to you. Next up, an article from the godfather of accountability, Sam Silverstein. Writing in his blog, Sam talks about accountable leaders must live in a mindset of respect. Uh, we all are uh, 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 live and work with others and connecting with others in a functional relationship is what makes a great corporate culture. 
And so you have to have respect inside of an organization. Uh, it's more important if you're a leader and it's, uh, but Sam takes it down to the interpersonal level, which means respect means looking the other person in the eye, whether they're wearing a three-piece suit or pushing a shopping cart. And uh, respect is uh, something that uh, is a key component of not only a healthy corporate culture, but also accountability. So uh, check out Sam's website. He's got some great resources around accountability. Someone I lean on for, for a lot of advice. He comes at it from a business angle. He's a former business owner. He's not a compliance officer or a lawyer. And uh, so uh, check it out. But respect is a, a key indicia that you've got a functioning, vibrant culture, Jay. Thanks, Tom. In the last article, we go to the practicalesg.com blog by Lawrence Heim. And he asks, does ESG really, who does ESG really serve? First, we're going to look at investors. Lawrence Heim asks, who's the primary beneficiary of corporate ESG programs? Many experts agree that the current ESG frenzy was catalyzed by the investment community, which is a diverse group with different goals and expectations. Here are three broad categories to look at. First up, equity investors. Numerous credible studies, experts, and academics claim that higher ESG performance means better stock prices. Yet ESG equity investors are not monolithic. They differ in themes, engagement versus exclusion strategies, screening and ratings methods used in ultimate investment goals. Is ESG outperformance for equities real? A study released last week from Scientific Beta, a Singapore-based ESG investments research provider called Honey, I Shrunk the Alpha, Risk-Adjusting ESG Portfolio Returns, argues. While many of the ESG strategies have positive returns, Adjusting these returns for risk shrinks alpha or excess risk-adjusted return to zero. Sector biases and exposures to equity-style factors capture the returns of ESG strategies. The findings do not question that ESG strategies can offer substantial value to investors. Instead, they suggest that investors who look for added value throughout performance are looking in the wrong place. Bond investors. Backed in 2011, Lawrence put forth the idea that bonds are a better way to reflect financial value of the inherently long-term nature of corporate ESG initiatives. Debt financing is in some ways better aligned with ESG. Bonds are not generally subject to wild valuation swings of equities. Short-term corporate performance pressures are far less meaningful in the debt context Debt investment strategies prioritize stability over time rather than big, quick performance spikes, and the interest rate is known and agreed to in advance and specifically established. At the same time, Heim wonders about the seeming conflict between long-term stability that ESG leadership offers bond investors versus the lower cost of capital that many observers, academics claim are being benefits of ESG. Now let's take a look at investing against the flow. All is not lost for companies that don't quickly adapt to ESG mandates, as there remains meaningful investor interest for companies all along the spectrum. The Financial Times reported that investors are rather inconsistent in following ESG guidance, so there is variability in how and hard a line some funds and advisors take. 
Observers and regulators have concerns about the potential overuse of the ESG tag on investment strategies as an attempt to cash in on trend, even where consideration of ESG performance is only nominal. Moving further along the spectrum, contrarian investors bet against ESG forward companies. High-frequency traders probably don't give ESG matters any particular weight, and private equity may take advantage of opportunities that others leave behind i.e. companies others may consider ESG neutral or laggards. Clearly, there are still investors who receive investment returns they seek even when putting ESG performance aside. In the end, investors are undoubtedly a major beneficiary of corporate ESG initiatives, but are they the primary beneficiaries? In the next part of this series, he will examine ESG value from the perspective of customers. Tom, where are we on podcasts for the week? So, uh, Jay, we had some uh, great pods this week. I had a five-part series sponsored by K2 Integrity. We considered the intersection of compliance, diligence, and M&A. We took a look at deep dive due diligence. We looked at the current state of M&A, both domestically and internationally. And in really one of the, I thought, most uh, prescient podcast timing events, uh, I had uh, Tom Pinnell looked at post-integration integration I thought it was so powerful. I wrote about it in the context of the SAP enforcement action. So you can check that out on my blog from Wednesday. Uh, we also, your colleagues, um, Jesse Kaplan, Dion Lomax, Jim Analot, have a podcast up from business opportunities to compliance risks, health expectations in 2021. I had a really interesting two-part series on the FCPA compliance report with Joey Sieber. He's the president of Level Legal, which is an alternative legal services provider. He talks about what that concept is and how it can be used in the context of outsourcing compliance. But then we had a wonderfully fun deep dive into the Baylor Bears 2021 Men's NCAA Basketball Championship. Joey's a long-suffering Baylor Bear fan, uh, not a lot to cheer for over the years, although there have been some wins. But this one, uh, it was funny. He uh, he said it was redemptive. So um, check out my uh, the, the part with Baylor is in part two, uh, which posted on Wednesday. Uh, got a great new book out, uh, the FCPA Year in Review, published by CCI. And Sarah Haddon has made it available free as an e-copy download, so check that out. And I'm extraordinarily pleased to tell you, Jay, that I have finally approved the final galley proofs for the Compliance Handbook. We are now in full production. We're looking at a mid-June release date for the book. It's still available on pre-sale with a 25% discount. We've linked to uh, the discount in the show notes, so uh, get it while you can get a discount on it. But uh, I finished up the galley proofs late Sunday night, so that was uh, my last part. Now it's over to our publisher, LexisNexis, uh, who are going to crank it out. Congratulations, Tom, on pushing Volume 2 up the hill like Sisius. Um, if you got any complaints here, or if you want to ply the voice of compliance with Star Wars memorabilia and his exchange for mentioning a secret location. He might be able to take that. I don't know how you can email Star Wars memorabilia, but if you'd like to speak to Tom, he's at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I am always the gray-haired and bearded wonder with the forehead, 
Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, who can be reached at the initial J, R-O-S-E-N, at affiliatedmonitors.com. So, on behalf of Tom Fox and myself, Jay Rosen, we'd like to uh, thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 258, for the week ending May 14th, 2021, the Musk and Bitcoin edition. We appreciate you spending time with us this week. And we look forward to speaking to you next week about This Week and FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories about upcoming webinars and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>